This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app. And you can also get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants, 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with three for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. Beyond the pitch, beyond the results, we're here to connect fans, getting them to embrace the highs and lows of supporting your club. Because we're not just fans, we're a team. With two in three football fans having struggled with their mental health, we understand that life off the pitch can present its own challenges. That's why we're committed to ensuring you have the tools to stay connected with your friends and fellow supporters. Take a moment to connect with your mates. A simple text or an open conversation can make a world of difference. And if they don't respond right away, don't hesitate to follow up. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Well, hello and welcome to Albion Analysis with me, Chris Hall, and him, Pete George. Well, rinse and repeat, unfortunately. Another day, another defeat for Albion. And the same old problems, another 3-2 defeat at the Hawthorns, where goal scoring, although we were a bit slow to start, a bit possibly being an understatement, we still managed to score two goals at home, which realistically should be more than enough to win any game. But the defensive frailties and the man behind the defence, who it won't shock you to find we're going to turn to and talk about an awful lot today, showed themselves up to be more than a bit fragile. Pete, I mean, it's it's a it's a worrying defeat at a at the start of a very very big run of games. I think we said before the international break that this was a big big game for Steve Bruce that he really needed to sort of like almost light the touch paper with with a win in this one. Having lost it and having then heard. I would say a section, I'm certainly not going to say by any stretch all fans, um, actually by the end, the, 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 the chants of Bruce out were verging on a little bit feeble, to be honest, there was that few people uh, chanting them, but certainly um, at, at three, two down, there was a fairly audible chant of you getting sacked in the morning. Where does this leave Steve Bruce and Albion, this defeat? Well, we said it last time that um, the best time to, to get rid of Bruce would have been two weeks ago at the start of the international break so that that new manager could come in and, um, you know, get the squad on the training ground and try and work on some of his ideas and implementing his style of play. So we seem to have missed that deadline. Um, and that's kind of why Swansea felt like such a big game. Um, it'd been the perfect time. Well, any times now is the perfect time to start a run going, but, yeah, if we'd won that game and could have gone on a little run, then things wouldn't have looked so so bad for Bruce. Um, but it's another defeat in a game that looked like it could have gone our way after it was 2-2 and we got the penalty. 
from that point, it looked like, you know, we could actually go on to win this and, and possibly start that, that run that I mentioned. Um, obviously- Let's just talk about the penalty a second, because I saw somebody tweet earlier, there are players that get managers the sack. And this person on Twitter said, I believe Carlin Grant is one of those players. I mean, I'm not necessarily saying I subscribe to that view, but what is he thinking, penenkering a penalty that is that pivotal in our season? Yeah, you'd, you'd hope he'd just put it into a corner and, and drill it hard. I think the success rates for them going central and stuff is, is pretty similar to anywhere, anywhere else, but it really doesn't look good when you... It looks... Um, yeah, it's about the like perception, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And it looks like you don't care and you're not trying and, and you... Almost like you, you're and you're too a bit flash. For, you think yeah. you think you're clever. Yeah, exactly. When in reality, you just need to get that ball in the back of the net and and take the three points. Assuming we'd be able to hold on to it, but for me, it's it's not the kind of style of penalty that you should be trying at that point. I know the the numbers behind it probably don't really agree with that, but when the season's going as it is, and we've got a chance to actually kickstart a little run with that penalty, just get your foot through it and put it in the back of the net. I mean, I'm sure if someone like Jed Wallace would have taken it, then he would he wouldn't have taken it in a fashion like that. Do you judge Bruce slightly for Grant even being on on penalties? Because we're going to question a few of Bruce's decisions today before we get onto the the wider problem. Um, and one of them that I I do think needs to be questioned is his loyalty to certain senior players. Um, I think he played Bartley a game longer than than he should have done. I also think he's got this little blind spot for, because a player has played well in a game the, in the previous match, that Bruce thinks that he has to keep them in the team. Whereas I'm very much of the opinion that at the moment, with eight games in 31 days, you pick a team for the occasion. You pick a team to suit the opposition that you're playing against, not just because certain players have played well in the previous game. You, they, they get they get a start. I think, and I think he's too loyal in some of the duties because there is very little to justify Carlin Grant still being on penalty kicks. When you look at his record, he's missed too many. And as you say, it's not like we're short of of other penalty takers in, in the squad. John Swift, I'm aware, was off the pitch at the time, but he is one. He's he scored a lot of penalties for, um, for Reading. Jed Wallace is, has taken penalties. And Brandon Thomas Sante scored one in the previous game. Yet, by virtue of the fact that Daro Shea had to go up and give the ball to um, Grant when there was a bit of a tete-a-tete between Grant and Brandon Thomas Sante as to who would take it, what that clearly shows is that the manager's instructions are being enforced by the captain and therefore the manager's instructions are that Grant is the designated penalty taker. And my question is, why? Does he have too much loyalty in certain areas to certain players and certain duties where really he should be looking a little bit more coldly at these things. Effectively, what I'm saying is, is he a bit too nice at times? Possibly. And he's possibly worried about upsetting potentially key players in the, in the dressing room. Grant's been there for a few years now. and You'd imagine he'd be quite a big personality in the dressing room and, you know, have his say on things. So if you take, and from what I've heard as well, he was a little bit rattled after after Robinson was sold and didn't particularly like that. So, I mean, maybe he's trying to win him round a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And if you take him off penalty duties for a player that we've just signed from, from League Two, 
Um, you know, he's not going to be happy about that, is it? Is he? But, you know, Thomas Santos scored one um, in the previous game and, as you say, he wanted it. But, yeah, it seems like O'Shea just was doing what he what was kind of assigned in the dressing room. That Yeah, France... we attach no blame to Dara O'Shea, by the way. As the captain, you have to do what the manager's instructions are. Yeah, if that's been set up, set up for the game, that I imagine everyone knows the penalty takers, everyone knows the set-piece takers. So if there's an argument, then then the captain just comes in and, and does what's been said in the dressing room before. So, yeah, I think that's that's got to be down to Bruce deciding the penalty takers. Um, as you say, Grant's record from the spot for Albion isn't isn't good at all. Um, so I think it will be interesting to see what happens next time we get a penalty because, you know, his record's not been good. And, I mean, that penalty may have just cost Bruce's job. So, I mean, we might not see from... What Bruce I mean, does, but yeah, potentially we're recording manager. on Sunday afternoon. I I would have expected to have heard something by now, to be honest. If we if he was going to go this week, yeah. So I mean, we'll see what happens next time we get a penalty because will Bruce tr- trust Grant to take another one? Um, and maybe we'll see. Well, he didn't start that game, but if Bruce has taken it off him and Grant's caused a fuss about it, then maybe we won't see Grant in the squad if there's been an argument there. So you know, it's just something to look out for when the the next. Lineups announced, and then, well, when we get the next penalty. I mean, to me, though, Pete, because he, he actually said on Radio WM after the game, look, um, Granty's missed a few now. He, he probably won't be taking the next one, and he's got to understand that. But I feel with, with Steve Bruce sometimes with these things, there's an element of closing the gate after the horse has bolted. Okay, it's all well and good taking Grant off penalties now, but the, the evidence was there. That, and this is not being smart after the event. I, all of us in the Birmingham road end around me were just like, give it the kid. Like, don't don't let Grant take it when he stepped up. We were not had no confidence in Grant scoring. He's missed too many. And I, I feel like... You know he he's dropped Bartley out of the squad. Okay, but but after we after we'd lost the game against Birmingham, when he had the warning against Burnley, we had we had that we had the initial warning that this was a problem, that those balls in behind were 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 an issue. I feel like he waits a little bit too long to fix problems that are staring him him in the face. And we might as well come to the elephant in the room, the thing that we want to talk about the most here. Um, the one that I can't believe he's waiting so long to fix is the goalkeeper. I'm, and by the way, I'm not saying that by fix, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm in any way thinking that Alex Palmer is some amazing silver bullet of a solution because I haven't seen enough of Alex Palmer to make a really informed judgment on him. What I have seen of Alex Palmer, I haven't been in love with. I don't think he looks an amazing goalkeeper. But at this present moment, we have a goalkeeper between our sticks who has faced 30 shots on target this season and has conceded 17 of them. So he's conceding more than half of the shots on target that he's facing. I think at quick maths, that's around 53%. Now, Pete, you you very kindly did the numbers on uh, on, on this earlier. And you found out that the divisional average... For uh, for saves is at um is at seventy percent that most goalkeepers in this division save seventy percent of the shots on target, whereas Button, I think he's saving about forty six forty seven percent. It's atrocious, and it, it, it's also worth saying because you very kindly again did the data. It is by far and away the worst in the division. Yeah, Button was at um was at forty eight percent and. The average was 70%, like you said, and yeah, he's the worst in the division for that. 
when you look at shot quality as well, when you look at the expected measures, um, his prevented goals per 90, you know, the, the amount more or less that he has prevented compared to what you'd expect from an average keeper is he's conceded 0.5 goals more than the average keeper would per 90. So each game is effectively costing us half a goal. Um, and wow. So he's costing us a goal every other game that he shouldn't be is basically what you're saying. Yeah, basically. Um, and you just wonder where, where in the division we'd actually be if we'd got a keeper that's performing at average. You, you know, we don't even need one that's performing above average right now. We just need, we just need average and we're happy because button is, you know, he's performing the worst in that measure as well. So he's letting, letting in a lot of goals that he really shouldn't be. What do you say about that? I mean, effectively, where we where we would be um, is 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 rather than if we were conceding thirty percent of the of the of the shots on target, which is which is what we should be doing, then we would have conceded nine goals this season. That would mean that we would have a goals for of seventeen and a goals against of nine. Let me just put that in perspective. That is exactly the same numbers as Norwich City, who are second. Now, I'm not saying that David Button is the be-all and end-all of our problems, but I'm telling you right now that if we had, if we still had had Sam Johnston between the sticks, and okay, it's maybe a bit unfair to say Sam because he is far too good for this level. But if we even had an average goalkeeper between the sticks, we would be in the top six and we're 21st with the bloke that we've got. Now, to blame Button for the vast majority of our problems is not to absolve Steve Bruce of blame because Steve Bruce is the bloke who's picking him every week. So he's got to take the take the blame here. But realistically speaking, Pete, we should be at 17 goals scored and nine conceded, which is the same as Norwich in second. Exactly. And I mean, you mentioned Johnston and he was a great keeper for us. But yeah, I really do believe that we would be a lot higher up the table if he he was here um, because I don't think the defence is actually doing an awful job. Um, You know, we're not conceding too many shots. It's just the fact that every shot we seem to face seems to go in the back of the net. So, Well, can we just put the numbers on that, Pete? Because again, you very kindly come up with these. In terms, baggage fans, just I'm going to, you know, just reel these out here because it's just so important that, that that we're all aware of these stats. Because I have never seen numbers like this for a goalkeeper at our level. Bearing in mind, we are supposed to be a team challenging for promotion. We have faced the fifth least shots on target in this division, yet we have conceded the third most goals. So we are fifth in terms of shots on target faced, and yet we are twenty second for goals conceded. That is that is staggering. And if you want to take that a little step further, right? It's not like these are uh, these shots on target that we're that we're facing are unsavable. Our goals against, according to XG. It should be 11.2. Our actual goals conceded is 17. Now, 11.2 would be the ninth in the championship. 17, as I say, 17 goals conceded is 22nd for goals conceded. David Button has conceded six more goals 
than he should be according to the expected goals. It's just honestly, every every little bit of data I look at this bloke, I can't help thinking if we if we stuck one of the training mannequins in goal, they'd have stopped more than this. Yeah, and it's uh, it makes you wonder what what Bruce is thinking. Does he really not trust Palmer, or is it again him trying to not upset the dressing room by by dropping button? I mean, he's almost forced him to move close to the training ground. There was a big deal made of that before he got off the new contract. So does he, now he's got him here, does he really not want to upset him by dropping him for, for Alex Palmer, who's relatively inexperienced as a goalkeeper? Um, you know, and earlier on in the at the start of the season, in the transfer window, loaning out Josh Griffiths. I know that's kind of, you know, we we didn't know Button would be this bad, but you'd have thought that, Bruton. Didn't we? We we we'd had this is the thing though, Pete. He's not a guy we've brought in from outside. We we've had this guy in the club for for two seasons before this. We've had plenty of time to have a look at him. Surely we know what he's capable of and what he's not. Yeah, you'd have thought that Bruce and the coaches would would know what they're working with just by seeing him off the training ground. I mean, we'd not seen an awful lot of him in actual um, games, but you know the work that he does on the training ground. He's there. Basically every day, you'd think that the that Bruce would have a good idea of, of what he can expect from from Button on a match day. Um, and if that is what he was expecting, then you really do have to wonder why Josh Griffiths has gone out on loan and and why why another keeper wasn't signed. Obviously, there's the fact that and the why club's we got went no to money. as much trouble as we did to sign Button, Pete, because as you said, he was forced to move closer. Why, if we know he's not good enough, why have we even gone to this much bother to get the bloke? Yeah, that's a bit strange, really. I don't know. Maybe he's on a on a relatively low wage for championship goalkeepers. Maybe we're just cheaping out on it. But yeah, I'm not really sure. It doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, and I mean, if Bruce doesn't bring in Palmer sometime soon, then then you really have to wonder what quality is Palmer. I mean, obviously we can't judge if we're not really seeing him. But the fact that Bruce hasn't brought him in yet, I mean, it. it does kind of concern me a bit because there's not a lot more that Burton could do wrong. Um, so you'd have thought that the backup keeper would be would be given a chance sooner than later. I mean, I think that's the point, isn't it? That we've all had concerns all the way along as to whether Alex Palmer is good enough. It do, he doesn't seem to be highly rated around uh, around the club. If he was, he would have got made n- n- the number one at the start of this season. And the Josh Griffiths one is strange. I mean, for me... I, I can see the argument for t- sending Josh, Josh Griffiths out on loan, but if you know that the two two other keepers you've got in Button and Palmer aren't good enough, surely you go and do what, like for example, Middlesbrough did, and go and get Zach Steffen for a, uh, for a year on loan from from a Premier League club. You basically go and go and pick off a a Premier League sort of like third choice goalkeeper who needs some game time, who you can take for 12 months whilst Griffiths gets his 12 months at Pompey playing at the top end of League One. You give a Premier League, young Premier League goalkeeper 12 months experience, everybody wins. We clearly don't want to play Palmer, so why have we even bothered giving him a new deal? Button's not good enough, so why have we given him a new deal? Basically, both instances scream, we've done it because it's cheap. That's the only possible reason I can come up with for, for keep because we've had plenty of time to look at both of these footballers and see them play enough games to know what we think of them. 
Palmer is clearly not trusted because we have statistically, by a long straw, the worst goalkeeper in the division, and he's still not being put into the mix after 11 games. Button is costing us match after match after match after match, and yet Palmer still doesn't get put in. So obviously nobody rates him. So why the hell was he given a new contract? Why? The only possible reason can be because he's cheap. And as I say, if we know Button's this bad, And nobody has ever trusted him as their long-term number one. Nobody, from what I can see looking at his career. I mean, for a guy who's played as long as he has, he really hasn't played that many football matches. And I don't don't get why we signed him. And I don't get if... I can understand the logic behind... Because people keep going on about Taylor and Griffiths, Taylor and Griffiths. Look, I can see why you would send them out on loan because there wasn't enough evidence to show that either of them were ready for a top-end championship challenge just yet. You probably wanted a little bit more evidence. But in both cases, you let Caleb Taylor go out, you have to bring in a Premier League loan, like we did with Tosin Adarabayo, for example, under under Darren Moore. A young centre-half who's going to play, you know, maybe... um, maybe 15, 20 games this season, maybe not all of them. And if you are letting Josh Griffiths out and you know the other two goalkeepers aren't good enough, you bring in a Premier League loan goalkeeper like Borough have with, with Zach Steffen, as happens all the time. Everybody wins in all those scenarios. You give the young Premier League player experience and game time playing at the uh, at the top end of the championship. Well, in theory anyway, because at the moment we're, we're obviously 21st. But... You, and, and also your players going out the other end, i.e. Griffiths and, uh, and Taylor, get 12 months playing in League One, being absolutely superb, come back full of confidence and ready to play for you the next year. I mean, this is not difficult stuff, Pete, to me, but it's yet another example of Gourlay, Bruce and Ian Pierce having absolutely no recruitment plan this summer. No no idea how to build a squad, no idea how to back up positions. And we end up massively top-heavy in certain areas and completely and utterly lacking in options in others. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, the one benefit is that Caleb Taylor and Josh Griffiths are going to have some League One experience ready for next season. So... That might be useful for us. I was going to say, you mean when we're playing in it? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But yeah, you know, it's a lack of planning. And from what I hear, they've, well, Caleb Taylor especially has been, has been very good. But I mean, the worry at the start of the season was whether A, would be good enough to, to help us with what we wanted to achieve and B, whether he would actually be able to get enough game time with us ahead of the, the senior players to, get the development that he needs. So I think loaning him out did make a lot of sense. Um, and we definitely thought we were going to get Clark at that point, didn't we, when we let Caleb out? Well, it seemed that way, yeah. So that was the other issue is that if we did get Clark, then there's no way that Caleb Taylor would be getting enough minutes for for his development. So that makes sense. And, and I mean, even the Griffiths one does kind of make sense. He's still a young keeper, but yeah, I mean... We did need to bring someone in because Button has been, as we've said already, the worst keeper in the division in terms of shot stopping. Um, and he clearly doesn't trust Palmer. So we're really lacking there. And it's it's really holding us back because at the other end of the pitch, we are scoring goals and, and we're doing fairly well there. Um, but we're just conceding far too many goals 
without conceding tons of chances. So then if you concede a lot of goals from very few chances, then that is when you've got to start looking at the keeper. A better keeper would be saving more shots and and the defence wouldn't be looking as bad because we wouldn't be conceding so many goals. So, yeah, I mean, it, if we did have a better keeper, even everything else the same, then we definitely wouldn't be on the edge of the relegation zone. No, because, I mean, it's worth it's worth lingering on that point that you just made about the goals for Colin Pete, because I see a lot of people criticising Bruce's tactics and saying, we put too many balls in the box, we, we, you know, we pump too many balls forward, we do this, we do that, we do the other. The reality of the situation going forward is that there are only three teams in the entire division who have scored more goals than us. Sheffield United, who are top, Burnley, who are fourth, and... Bristol City, who are just some sort of freaks of nature when it comes to scoring goals, who just like, who uh, I mean, you know, if you if you if you if you're ever placing a, a a bet on both teams to score, I mean, I'd, I'd be all over a Bristol City game. In fact, I'd probably be all over a West Brom game as well if I was you. But um, it, you know, it, it just seems to happen every week. But there there are three teams in the whole league who've scored more goals than us. There is no way as the fourth top scoring team in the division that you should be out the relegation zone on goal difference. No, and I don't think, well, I'm certainly not saying we're perfect going forward because we do have some real top quality players in that position, but we're definitely not doing a bad job there. And we are scoring enough goals to to be um, winning games and be much higher up the table, so... I mean, we've we've scored of, we've scored two in the last two home games, Pete. We should win both of those games, shouldn't we? Well, yeah. When you're scoring two at home, you you expect to win the majority of games. You definitely wouldn't expect to to lose two. Um, which is again, it comes back to the defensive side of the game. And as we've said, shots conceded isn't that very high. Isn't particularly high, but goals conceded is is very high. So it always it always just comes back to to the keeper when you're looking at the the date behind the performances. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just, it is holding back our season. And if we don't make a change there, whether that's, well, I mean, the only option right now is to bring Palmer in and test him out. But come January, if we don't do anything about it, either bringing back Josh Griffiths from loan or, or potentially signing someone, which would almost definitely have to be on a loan. But if we don't do anything about it, then I can't really see us pushing for a um, well, promotion or a, a playoff spot coming the end of the season. We'll do well to stay up, mate, if we're still conceding one goal in every two shots that gets put in on, put in on our goal. Yeah, we will. Um, which, well, it's just a massive worry, isn't it? I, there's not much more you can say about that, but it needs to change. Something needs to change. Whether that's, I mean, yeah, like I've said, it's the only option right now is to give Palmer a try because... I don't think he could be doing much worse than Button is right now. Do you have any questions around the way Bruce sets his defence up? I mean, he's done. Uh, I mean, uh, w- w- we're not going to rake over old, old ground here. We we both said categorically after the Birmingham City game, he got that completely wrong. The high line without a Jai, with Bartley in there, with Taylor Gardner Hickman, a right back who likes to get forward as the uh, as the cover for Bartley, was all sorts of wrong and. I'd like to think Bruce would have enough about him that if we asked him the question, he would say, look, I hold my hands up. I, I, I set that defence up completely and utterly wrong. But generally speaking, over the course of this season, do you think that 
do you question Bruce's defensive setup? He's tried obviously a number of different things. He started off fairly consistently with um, Furlong, Ajayi, O'Shea, and Townsend as as, uh, as the back four. He's had um, Malumbi and Yukoslu, Malumbi and Livermore, Livermore and Yukoslu, and then uh, sat in front of them at times. He's put Swift in into the eight. He obviously started with Rogic, who I have to say looked not ready at all. I thought he was completely off the pace. Um, and I think Bruce has to has to t- carry the can on that one as well, that he's got to work out when players are fit. He's apparently got this amazing, uh, amazing sports science guy in. Well, I'm sorry, you've played, you admitted you played Grady when he was unfit against Birmingham. And now you've, you admitted after the game that Rogic wasn't up to it against Swansea. You've got to start getting these things right. But generally speaking, on the defensive side of things, and now he's shifted to a system where it's Furlong at right back, um, uh, O'Shea alongside Townsend at centre half and Peters at left back. He has tried a number of different things, never changing the shape particularly, but moving the personnel around and thus giving us a bit of a, dif- a different defensive look. Do you question Bruce's defensive setup or are you looking at the, the shots data and the expected goals and just saying plain and simply, this is, this is down to the keeper and probably where there are defensive errors and there have been defensive errors other than the Birmingham I'm going to put the Birmingham game to one side because I think Bruce got that all wrong and we all know that but taking that out of it taking that as a total outlier out of the whole season do you think the defensive setup's wrong or are there possibly individual mistakes creeping in because they're so shot to bits of confidence because they just don't trust the bloke behind them yeah I think the general defensive setup isn't isn't bad um Similar with the attacking setup, it's it's decent. It's not perfect, but it seems to be doing a fairly good job. I think we were about ninth for expected goals conceded. So that's, I mean, it's as I say, far from perfect, but it's it's definitely not as bad as the goals conceded um, tally suggests. I think the ideal backline definitely at the start of the season was Furlong, Ajay, O'Shea, and Townsend. Um, Eric Peters has, from what I've seen, has done pretty well since he's signed and come into the side. So um, there may be a, a question over who would be the better player for for left back and when everyone's fit. Um, but he made the mistake with Bartley and Garden Hickman, as you say, um, and we have kind of struggled to to cover the balls in behind that that right channel since the Jai has been. Injured, which is half expected because the guy is, you know, so quick and he's he wins those one-on-one duels and he protects us in that way. I mean, against with Townsend in in centre back yesterday, there was a couple of occasions where he probably didn't didn't look his best. I mean, the I think it was the third goal he he didn't quite get tight enough to. Um, was it Upper Femi that scored the last one? Um, it was, yeah. And I mean, that, that that was kind of where I was a little bit getting to with this, Pete, because, I mean, obviously, it's a similar goal to the one that um, Brereton Diaz scored against us for the first goal against, um, against Blackburn, where he just sort of like... Um, he backs in, he knows where the defender is, he gives himself that yard and he spins him. Um, and and I thought that was naive from from Townsend for that goal. And that's, you know, that is where you do have a problem if you don't have a naturalised centre-half. Yeah, Townsend, he shouldn't... Well, no defender should be letting a, a striker turn six yards. He, he got his back to goal when he received the ball and he let him turn. 
about six yards away from goal, which is, you know, it's criminal as a defender because you're just letting the forward get a shot off. Um, and there was a, an occasion in the first half where he, he kind of didn't shift across fast enough when the ball had gone to the other side. So they put a cross in and, and the free man, I think it was Piro, had a free header. But then again, that was, wasn't helped by, I think O'Shea was initially marking him. Um, but then they had a, mon- a run of midfield come in and O'Shea had to pick up that man and, and leave Piro drifted to the back post where you could argue Townsend should have been. But at the same time, if, if we'd got a, a more solid midfield that's going to track the, the runners from Swansea, then O'Shea wouldn't have had to switch. So, so it could a- partly have been down to, uh, to to Rogic not really being on the pace. And I have to say, I thought it was moderately suicidal to not play Malumbi in a game like that, where the battle was always going to be in midfield. It was always going to be high tempo, given the way Swansea play. And to not have somebody like with the energy of Malumbi in there, I thought was crazy. Yeah, and I thought he might play Swift a bit more alongside, a bit deeper, more alongside Livermore than than higher up because he has dropped in a few times earlier in the season when we were bringing on, you know, when we were behind and trying to get more attacking players on, we'd bring on Robinson to play, to play as a 10 and then drop Swift deeper alongside um, Yakuzhalu or whoever else was playing in midfield. So I thought we might do that and ask Swift to do a bit more defensive work as well. But um, I'm with you there that I think Mullumby would have been a very useful player in that game. You know, Swansea passed the ball, around well and it was always going to be a busy game for the midfielders and, and Mullumby covers the most ground of our midfielders and, and wins the ball back a, a lot so I think he was a big miss. Just before we before we move on just to go back to Bruce um, and I mean I have to say I'm with you if, if we were going to sack him I think the time to do it was before the international break I, I can't I mean unless unless we go and lose the next two I can't see him getting sacked during this during this run. I think, I, I, th- I think he, he he wins against Preston or Luton, and I think he's probably bought himself some time. That's not me saying that I think Bruce is the long term solution. I really don't think he is, and I never thought he was. We did a whole pod uh, saying who we would have instead of him. But the more I look at our football club, and the more I look at the absolute cataclysmic mess that we seem to be in, I have to say, Pete, my my big question becomes. If you were to get rid of Steve Bruce, who on earth do you bring in? Because people keep throwing around names. And I think I think some of the names that get thrown around are so lazy. I saw some people talking about Liam Rossini. It's like, are you completely ignoring the fact that he, uh, that he, he looked completely out of his depth at Derby, left them in 11th, and they moved him on because they genuinely believed he wasn't the man to get him out of um, League One and, and, and brought in Paul Warren. I, I just think people hear names and just like, yeah, he'd be great. Um, but also look at the systems these managers working and and a lot of these younger younger names that that get thrown around these kind of like uh, they're nice names and everything but they're used to working in systems where they have support they get to go out and do the coaching and they have support on all the other sides of things from sporting and technical directors and the proper football structure that any football club should have let's be perfectly honest we do not have that and if you bring in that sort of a manager who is used to working with support, he isn't going to get it and he will fail. End of. So if we were to get rid of Bruce, 
we would have to replace him until we've got that structure with a fairly like-for-like replacement. Yet again, it would likely be a fairly short-term replacement, and I think short-term thinking is what's got us into this mess in the first place. But, I mean, the only viable option who wouldn't come, by the way, is Sean Dyche. Outside of that, I really don't see many old school managers out there who could do who would be any better than Bruce and that the fans would welcome any more with open arms than they did with Steve Bruce. The reason we hired Steve Bruce, I'm not defending Gourlay here because I, I think he's he's a massive part of the problem and I've got absolutely no time for him. But I can kind of get the logic that there is absolutely zero footballing structure and you need he needed a top to bottom old school manager to look after the club. Now, is it working? No, but then you can even see from the recruitment that it's all coming from Bruce, really, that they, they've got no faith in Ian Pierce whatsoever. And it's all coming from sort of Gourlay and Bruce, which is why there's no imagination to our recruitment. If we got rid of Bruce, Pete, I think people think that what we would do is go and get some, some sort of like um, sexy appointment of some young up-and-coming lower league manager or somebody who's like a coach at a Manchester City um, or someone like that and like Enzo Maresca or someone like that and bring them in or go abroad and get some get some nice name they would fail because these people want to work as a coach within a football structure which is what we don't have and I, I think the reality is that what we would have to replace Bruce with is another one of the old school managerial merry-go-round type managers, and the fans would just be totally disaffected with that appointment, just as they just as they were with Bruce. What do you think? Yeah, I'm similar thinking to you there. Um, if you do bring in a more coach like manager, um, then you may see some some better results short term. But when it comes to transfer windows, then you're probably going to see some signings that have a lower success rate because maybe the manager's not used to doing the, the recruitment work or um, they're more they're more specialised in the coaching and, and the tactical setup of a team rather than going into the market and bringing in players. Um, so you're probably going to waste money in that aspect, but... And they're I mean, probably not used to managing upwards and dealing with uh, with with, with uh, directors, CEOs, people people like that, because that's the sporting director becomes the conduit between those two. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, you mentioned that we're thinking about bringing in. Well, that it wouldn't work if we brought in players from uh, managers. Sorry, from from abroad. But similar with the players, we've probably never heard of a manager that manages abroad. Um, so I doubt we'd even look at outside of the UK. Um, but again, you, you said you don't blame Gourley for appointing Bruce because we needed that kind of manager. But I think you've got to blame Gourley for not sorting out the structure. I mean, he's been here probably close on six. Well, I mean, including his consultancy work, he's been here probably a year now and we still don't have that structure in place. So, I mean, I, and I think he said he was going to bring in a a board of different kind of people with different kind of expertise and he'd brought in the uh, sports scientist that had formerly worked at Manchester United and maybe a couple more, but I don't think that's that's filled out yet and I think we're still lacking that structure up top. So I think in that aspect, you've definitely got to look at Gourley and, and place the, some of the blame there. Oh, massively, massively. I, I completely blame Gourley. And that's why, why I say, you know, I don't like him and I've got no time for him because 
I don't think he's lived up to the promises that he's made. And I don't, I don't like players. Sorry. I don't like people who make empty promises. It, 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 it's bang out of order. And I don't think he's lived up to any of the things that he told us. And that moves us on to the other point that Pete, that you were saying about, you know, we probably wouldn't look abroad because we wouldn't know who to bring in. I mean, that's the other thing for me. We have sacked managers five times in the last, in the five full seasons that Lai has owned the club. Now, obviously, two of those were in one season. We sacked Pulis and Pardew in one season. Um, and Darren Moore couldn't quite keep us up, didn't have a lot of games at the end of the season. Then the following season, we, uh, we, we sacked Darren Moore and we brought in Jimmy Shan. No, it's not a dig at, at Jimmy um, because he did a fantastic job. But, you know, we finished in the same position as we did. It didn't, it's not like it catapulted us to automatic promotion. And we, and we sacked Jimmy without, uh, without a plan. Uh, sorry, we sacked Darren without a plan. Jimmy said as much on this, uh, on this podcast because he said he thought Alex Neal was coming in and then his phone rings when Alex Neal's turned the job down. Jimmy, can you take it to the end of the season? So yet again, it's Albion sacking without any sort of, uh, sort of a plan. We sacked Pulis without a plan and then we paint ourselves into a corner, end up hiring Pardew. We did sack Billich with a plan to bring in Allardyce, but we were, we were so daft that we thought Allardyce could play Allardyce football with Billich players. And we had to basically suffer dreadful results all the way up to the January transfer window, where we finally got, got a few bodies in and then results improved. But unfortunately, we were so far off the pace that we couldn't improve our form to a level which would have kept us up. So although that one did work again, it was naive because we thought that we could improve from the moment we sacked Billich. And it's like, but Allardyce can't play Allardyce football without Allardyce players. So again, not particularly well thought out. And then we sacked Val to bring in Bruce again with a squad built very clearly for one particular type of manager. And it's badly thought out because Bruce is not going to be able to improve with Valerian Ishmael players. I just don't see how if we sacked Steve Bruce that I trust this management group at West Bromwich Albion to get the next appointment to have any more of a succession plan than we have had in the last five years. Because we don't ever, ever seem to have a plan for the direction of this football club. And I don't think we've got one now. I'm seeing no evidence of one. The only direction this football club is going is down, unfortunately. And I just don't believe that that if we sack Steve Bruce tomorrow, that we would have any idea who we wanted next. Uh, it's just a constant chopping and changing of managers and, and different um, tactical approaches, which which doesn't work. You need a long-term vision for a club and you need people to buy into that from the players up to the, the boardroom. And I just don't think we've got that long-term vision. So obviously each managerial appointment is just off the cuff, if you like. It's just whatever is available at that time and whatever we need in that short-term period. Like with, with Allardyce, obviously short-term we needed to stay up and we brought in was probably the best manager for that short-term job, which does make sense. But then you need that plan for the long term as well. Um, well, and also you need to understand what what players work with what managers, which is where which is where it's fallen down a, a couple of times. Like I say, Pulis into Pardew. We didn't understand that Pardew couldn't play with Pulis players. We didn't understand that Allardyce couldn't do what he needed to do with 
Bilic players. And we didn't understand that Valerian Ishmael, one, needed a lot of time and probably quite a lot of money to create a squad that worked for his brand of football. And then after sacking Val, that probably Bruce couldn't do what he wanted to do with Valerian Ishmael's players. There doesn't seem to be any understanding of football philosophies. It was naive from higher up than the manager when we're looking at, if you look at the transfer window we had after we got promoted under Billich, it was generally just Billich's signings that he'd either had last season or he was desperate for, rather than someone higher up saying that these players aren't going to keep us up and we need we need to recruit differently to, to suit the needs of the Premier League because you look at the players that Allardyce brought in and generally they're very good signings um, and seemed to make a bigger impact in in our survival hopes. But it was naive that we could carry on playing as we were in the Championship in the Premier League. Um, and then it was just poor planning to, to have to... Well, I mean, if we'd planned a bit more long-term, we'd have kind of expected ourselves to be down at, towards the bottom of the champion, the Premier League, sorry. So we need players that are going to suit that. And then if we did have to make that change from Billich to Allardyce, maybe we would have had a squad that better suited Allardyce than the one that he, he inherited. So, I mean, yeah, it's just, it's a complete lack of long-term planning, um, chopping and changing managerial styles um, to have squads that don't don't fit the, fit the next manager instantly. Um and it just doesn't work. And, and we've seen that over the past five or six years, however long it's been now. Um, and it's, I mean, it pretty nicely coincides with the point that Live bought the club. So I think that's where, I think, yeah, you've got to look at the top there and see what's trickling down. And from the top as well, I mean, we're, look, we're seeing some worrying things around the ownership of the club and uh, and and the, the finances and everything like that. And by the way, I mean, look, uh, the, those of you who don't know, Pete does actually have have a background in in, in finance and 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 accounting and that sort of thing. So he's way more knowledgeable than than me on these things. Um, I'm I, I, I'm very thankful that balancing your checkbook is not really a thing anymore because I'm pretty sure I, I, I couldn't do it um, English journalism that's far more my bag than the mathematics however I have sort of challenged myself to try and understand a little bit more about these things and and after there was the the, the letter to um to shareholders which by the way I'd like to thank uh, when, when I, I like the Albion community of podcasts and I don't like to think that we ever have a a, a rivalry where we don't mention other podcasts because uh, we all seem to actually get on well together and share information i'd like to thank the liquidator podcast for bringing to people's attention the letter to to shareholders from from ken um and i you know there was some stuff in there that was that that was worrying and there was some other stuff that was that that was worrying as well obviously the loans have been very concerning the auditor resignations have been flagged um i did speak to a um a football finance expert on on Twitter, who I won't name because the, the person openly admitted that they that they haven't followed the club in enough granular detail to make a considered assessment. However, they they were very clear that from the outside looking in, they consider the situation very very wonder uh, very very worrying. And um, to use the exact words on on the message to me, um, what the hell is happening? Um, was was the exact words, which which is very concerning and. 
Pete, obviously within that letter to shareholders, there was obviously a fair number of things in there that, that tried to offer some reassurance, which were backed up in the recent Albion Assembly. There seemed to be um, assurances um, around the training ground and around the, um, the the stadium that these things would uh, would not be uh, would not be sold. They did use the words "there is no current intention," which, whilst having some ominous tones, that it leaves it open to do it in the future. I think that um, that it's it, you know it's worth saying that what else are they supposed to uh, supposed to say? They're not going to close the door on that one hundred percent. But it did seem like it was it was made very categoric at the Albion Assembly that there there was not any real intention to sell the ground or the training ground which is good but then when you look at some of the uh, there was there was some stuff in that letter where they were asked to um, uh, to to clarify a um, uh, somebody who who was uh, who resigned as a director of the club um, via company's house again I'm not a finance expert so I'm not you know I'm not massively au fait with company's house but when when that point was clarified it seemed to suggest that uh, that, um, that there was an indirect uh, interest from another uh, another company. I'm not going to embarrass myself by trying to say the first part of it, but they were a Shanghai sports development company. It does seem like we've got a bit of a splintered ownership. Uh, a splintered ownership. It's hard to quite work out exactly who owns the football club in its entirety. Lai is obviously at the front of all of that, but who actually is? is the one pulling the strings and if we did want to sell the football club if indeed lie or whoever else has has shares in the club did want to sell it the more people obviously involved in that process the more complicated it becomes it becomes it becomes really really worrying and there just seems to be bits and bobs all the time just popping up like I say we're not finance experts we don't fully understand this but when I start saying this stuff to finance experts and them saying, look, I don't completely understand this because I'm not in depth, in granular into the books of West Bromwich Albion. And I, I don't know everything about it, but on the very face of it, I would be worried if I was you. That really starts to scare me, Pete. Uh, what, what do you think? You've got a bit more knowledge in, in this area than, than, than me. And like I say, we haven't got in-depth knowledge to so please just take what we say purely as our opinions. This is no this is no gospel interpretation of finances because we simply don't have that level of information. But what I am seeing crop up in the media via companies' house, via letters to shareholders, via auditor resignations, all these sorts of things, it just keep it's just another it's like the snowball rolling and getting bigger and bigger, and the bigger it gets, the more scared I get. Yeah, it seems like they want to try and keep it complex and, and definitely not transparent. Um, I think it, the group that you mentioned was actually the group that was announced as the um, when the takeover from Peace went through was the group that bought it, and it's just that um, Lai was. Um, I think he was uh, he owned the group or was the CEO or something, so basically controlling that. So that's why he's the face of it. And why it's right. So that fella mentioned has a ten point five five percent stake in the group that owns West Brom. Yeah, I believe so. So I think that's where his um, connection is, and and we generally talk as of lies the the owner when it's it's that group that actually owns it. But um, well, I think at the time of purchasing the Albion lie, 
did have the controlling was the controlling shareholder of that group. So that's why he's the face of of the ownership of Albion, whether that's changed or not. Um I'm not sure. So I think that kind of explains that one, but it is because it's owned by a group who then clearly have shareholders themselves. It is kind of indirectly owned by probably quite a lot of parties. Anyone that is invested in, in that group will have a small ownership, I guess, of, of the Albion. But yeah, I mean, they obviously want to try and keep it. Um, they don't want it to be transparent. They don't want the fans really to completely understand what's going on. Hence why they changed the, um, it's a, it, it's a, it's a, it's a bit like uh, for any. I mean, I'm sure you have, Pete. But for anybody who's watched The Big Short, which is all about the 08 market crash, and and they basically say that Wall Street like to use a lot of confusing language because they they want to make you feel stupid and make it think make you think that only they can do what they can do. And it's a bit like that. I think I think they they probably try to use a lot of terminology to make football fans feel like that they're, they're not you know they don't have the qualifications to understand the ownership of their own football club yeah exactly and they want as many layers to it as they can as they can have um just to make it again a bit more confusing and like i say they don't they don't want it to be transparent which is why they changed the date for the publishing of the accounts previously which meant that they could have a three-month extension on it i think and i think again they were still late to that so which is, I mean, when that came out, it was, seemed obvious why they'd done that because um, there was this loan that we hadn't previously heard about until the, those accounts came out. And it was just, I mean, the initial date for the publishing of the account should have been around about the end of the season. I think it was the end of May it was meant to be, um, which is when they're trying to sell season tickets, isn't it? So if you delay it and don't give the bad news that, We've loaned what was it five million to the to the owner on top of the previous um, loans that they got. If we, um, you know, if you tell the the fans that before they bought the season ticket, then you're probably not going to sell as many. So I think, yeah, they don't want the fans to understand, and they don't want the fans to to see what's going on behind the scenes. So make it as complicated as possible, and and try and hide what's what's being put into the accounts. Still, at least in that letter to shareholders, um, it said that there was going to be uh, a, a, an interest uh, payment of a uh, fifty thousand pounds on that five million loan that you that you um, mentioned, Pete. So we'll look forward to spending that all at once. What fifty thousand pounds on a five million loan is not going to be what the uh, the interest interest rates are going up to at the minute. So, but at the time, it, I think it was in fairness. So it was done at the market rate, but I mean. I think five million pounds. If that was invested into the club in the transfer window, then we probably would have seen a return of of more than one percent because we'd probably be pushing for for top six promotion. And if you, if you do get that, um, do finish up there, then yeah, you're definitely making more than one percent of of that. So, it, well, it would definitely be put could be put into def- better places than than lies other businesses. Um, yeah. So, well. I mean, we've said it for basically since we started the pod that the ownership underlie. Um, yeah, it's not good news for Albion. And he seems to be, with the loan, he seems to want to be taking money out of it. And we, well, we'll see in, I think it's December the repayment date's meant to be, isn't it? 
Yeah. I mean, look, I said on Twitter, Pete, and you, you, uh, I, I know you actually chuckled when I said this in one of our early pods, actually, that we, that we did, that I honestly believe if Lai continues to own the club, I don't think it'll be this season, by the way. I, do, I, I don't think we'll get relegated this season, but I think two, three years from now, if Lai is still the owner, I think we'll end up in League One. What do you think? At the minute, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Previously, I wasn't. Regardless of who the manager is, by the way. Yeah, of course, but when you're being run as badly as, as we seem to be, then at some point you just keep, well, as the club starts falling, the quality of manager that you can bring in starts falling as well, and same with the players. So at that point you're heading in, in one direction. Um, I think a year ago I wasn't too against Lai being the owner because from what I could see at that point, he wasn't taking money out of the club. Um he may not have been investing money in the club, but um, neither did Jeremy Peace. And the difference is that he, he ran ran it well, ran it um, successfully. He got the right people in the right places and kind of, well, built the club up to a Premier League level. Lai isn't doing that, but I wasn't against him too much because he wasn't taking money out of the club. And there's a lot of owners out there that that do that, so... At that point, I was thinking, yes, you may want him out, but you could easily get a, a new owner in that's that's a lot worse and is actually just coming to, to asset strip and basically destroy the club. But now, um, after that, £5 million loan was announced. Well, not announced, was shown in the accounts. Um, yeah, I'm definitely more sceptical and, and concerned about where our future lies underlie. Concerning times to be a West Bromwich Albion fan. Well, we'll leave it there for today, but let's hope that even if things aren't going to get better quickly off the pitch, and I don't think there is a quick solution to the problems off the pitch, that hopefully they can get better quickly on the pitch. We obviously do have two games coming up in very quick succession, uh, away at Preston on Wednesday and then at home to Luton on Saturday. We will record again after that Luton game. So hopefully, fingers crossed, we've actually got some more positive results to to talk about. But then again, we've been saying that for most of this season. But that is always the hope. We eternally live in hope on Albion Analysis. But until next time, thanks for listening and up the baggies. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure 24 7, 365 days of the year. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Albion have certainly been sharing the goals around this season. They're well into double figures now for different championship goal scorers. So why not take a leaf out of their book and do some sharing of your own with a McNugget share box? Order McDelivery now on the McDonald's app. You in? 
At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.